It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hey, friends, this is Andy. This episode of Accelerate is brought to you by KiteDesk. KiteDesk is the all-in-one sales development platform that lets you manage all of your sales development activities, such as email, direct dial phone calls, and your daily to-dos, all in one place to open up conversations, book more qualified meetings, and really create a predictable pipeline. KiteDesk Flow and KiteDesk Find allows us to find exactly the right people in the industries we're looking for, in the roles that we're looking for. That's KiteDesk customer Michael Orfis. Michael is head of sales at Stratified. In addition to the all-in-one management of his sales development team's days, KiteDesk helps him with another big part of his job. We have the ability with KiteDesk to do what we call targeted campaigns. Our conversion rate from what we were doing in the past to what we're doing now has been really massive. So you don't have to take tons of time to research, prospect, then blast large lists of people but never turn into sales opportunities. We're seeing higher clicks, we're seeing higher open rates, and without question, we've seen a massive increase in pipeline generation. So, to learn more about KiteDesk, schedule a free demo, and learn how to create predictable pipeline at your sales organization, go to kitedesk.com forward slash accelerate. That's K-I-T-E-D-E-S-K dot com slash accelerate. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to be joined by my guest once again on the show, Tibor Shanto. He's an author, speaker, trainer, sales expert. Tibor, welcome back to Accelerate. Great to be back. Folks, fun the first time. It's bound to be fun again. Yeah, well, in case somebody missed your first episode, if you think way back, almost to the beginning, episode number 42, Tibor wow. is one of my first, first victims. So maybe just for people who didn't <laughs> hear that, just refresh people's memories. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, as you said, um, a bag of sales-related things. Um, I do training as well as speaking, to some degree coaching, and I tend to write quite a bit, uh, both in terms of my own blog. Um, I've had a couple of books in the marketplace, and I continue to work on one that I promise, at least to myself, will be out in 2017. Um, and I work with all sorts of companies, but the one thing they all have in common is A, they're all B2B, and B, they're all focused on new business acquisition, and generally one of two forms. One is the obvious, how do we bring on brand new logos, brand new customers? The other is more, how do we go deeper and wider within existing accounts, so either pursuing new budgets or, in many cases, a new offering that uh, maybe the previous buyer wasn't aware of, or a simple example would be somebody that's moving from selling product to moving to selling managed services. Mm -hmm. That would be an example of new revenue, but still in an existing client base. Um, we do a whole number of things around that, but primarily what we focus on is process and execution, because as you know, my favorite saying is that in sales, success is all about execution. Everything else is just talk, and there's plenty of talk in sales. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on. What yeah, I've heard. About? What are you talking about? Exactly. Yeah, it's funny that you brought that up because I was. <sighs> 
<laughs> I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review that was just out oh, recently. And mm-hmm. the name of this article was uh, how B2B sales can benefit from social selling. And I barely got through the first three paragraphs before thinking, you know, it cites all this research that's been done. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about, A, how self-serving most of that research is that's that's done. I mean, it's oftentimes done by companies trying to justify why people should buy their product. And it's um, and it's kind of <laughs> kind of nonsense oftentimes. I mean, they have a quote in there that said about some study they quote that's saying three out of four B2B buyers rely on social media to engage with peers about buying decisions. And they're absolutely right, but I think the problem lies. So I agree with you. I'll give you a quick aside that well, I think let, is humorous. Let me, let me make my point about so, it. <laughs> go ahead. It's like, that's like a big so what? I mean, I'm willing to bet that 75% or three to four or three out of four B2B buyers would have engaged with peers about buying decisions prior to social media. And so it's a big so what that now they use social media. I mean, it's just a fact of life. Of course they're going to use it. And we all use it as salespeople. So what's that really saying to us? And why is that important? I don't know if it's that important. As I was (laughs) saying, what I think, first of all, I agree with you about the self-serving thing. Um, I've always thought it humorous, and I hope that I don't get punished by anybody for this. But, you know, LinkedIn has their uh, social selling index, their Mm -hmm. SSI. Except the only thing it measures is your use of LinkedIn, like it doesn't go and see what I do on Twitter or what I do on Facebook or what I do on any other social platform. And right. there's plenty of them available, right? So I've had this blog lined up for a long time, you know, that basically the headline asks the questions, SSI, Social Selling Index or Self-Serving Interests. But uh, I guess I'm not <laughs> the only one that's thinking about that. Well, it's just that sort of the... The point seems to be is that there that I was trying to make is there's all this we talked about so much talking that goes on in sales. I mean, there's all this research of sorts that that's occurring, but it's it's not. I mean, it's <laughs> it's hard to say. It's like listen, besides being self-serving, a lot of times it's just drawing conclusions about things that really aren't cause and effect related. <laughs> And a lot of these are in um, a lot of these are, are are victims of echo chamber, right? So remember Sales 2.0. Everybody was talking about Sales 2.0 because they were at the Sales 2.0 conference. You know, you moved the block away, and not many people were talking about it. So I think that a lot of times, I think look, let let's social tools are important, but as you say, they're an evolution of what we used to do in the past, right? So in the past, we'd ask the guy at our you know, gym or other social setting. Um, now I don't have to leave my desk and I can get a wider um, feel for it. But I think the other part of it, I think that, and, and you know, there's a number of other stats floating around that are in that same neighborhood where 50, you know, buyers are 57% of the way through their buying journey before reaching out to a salesperson. And I think that all those things are true, but they're only reflecting half the reality. And that's where I think they fall down because, buyers are people who entered the marketplace on their own, right? They put up their hands and they said, I have a need or I have a pain or Mm -hmm. I have something that I need to deal with. So when I'm hungry, I need to go out and get, you know, uh, something to eat. 
But there's a whole segment of the market out there, and we touched on this the last time, but there's a whole segment of the market out there that left to their own devices will not enter the marketplace. So from my point of view, the salespeople that I think that are really salespeople that are really good at, at, at the art and the science and the vocation of selling are the ones who can bring those people in on the sidelines, the ones who weren't going to search engines, the ones who weren't going to social media, the ones who, if unapproached, would have been completely happy and, and, and kept doing what they were doing before. And I think that part of it, social media, they don't know social media exists and they're not impacted by anything you or I do on social media. And again, I'm not knocking social media. I use it, but it's only effective for a small segment of the market. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that the whole thing sort of brought to mind as I was reading that, that uh, HBR article, mm-hmm. again, talking about too much talk in sales is it called to mind I don't know, Daniel Kahneman and work that he's done about you know decision theory and so on, but he and behavioral economics and you know f- term that they use is this term representativeness, okay. which I say is you know leading people to see cause and effect where they should see uncertainty and randomness instead. And yeah, yeah I really see that because there's a whole push about you know, the science of selling and really to the exclusion of, I don't call it the art of selling, but the person to person selling part of it that goes on. And there's some people, you know, fervently believe that, Hey, the science of selling is going to completely replace, you know, quote unquote, the art of selling. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much randomness and complexity and uncertainty, as Kahneman said, in people and in their interactions that, that uh, it's possible, and I think we see this, we're overstating the importance of the science of selling. I think so. And I think one of the interesting things is if you look, there was, you know, there's a school out there that talks about how, um, you know, there's all this, I guess, the lack of process going into decision, yet, you know, a lot of the decision makers out there are not, they're, they're smart people. I mean, again, not only are they educated, but they're also experienced and so on. And like you say, there's a whole bunch of colors in how they do things as opposed to just black and white. Yeah. Well, that's what makes people people, right? Yeah. That's what makes the whole thing fun. <laughs> yeah. So, again, to your point, is yeah, there's aspects of, of the science of selling that are important, but... To hold back to talk about too much talk as what too much talk is leading in some cases, people thinking that it's paramount, where actually I don't think it is. Well, I think, you know, and, and you and I play in this arena to a degree that, you know, this whole notion around content marketing and everybody starts off doing content marketing and then about two weeks into it, they realize they can't produce any more content. Um, so, whereas people ask me how I'm able to come up with and I don't think I'm a prolific guy. I do two blogs a week and I talk about how I share my experience with people that I have every day in the course of either training or trying to sell my training or any of the other things that I do. So that gives me a lot of, as you say, relationships, people and things that I could borrow from. Um, and it's that human experience that allows me to write and talk about what I talk about because I just reflect what I see in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we bought into the science machine and all that, it may not be uh, – some of that stuff just wouldn't be there. And I, I, I think you know that's the one fear that I have for 2017 is 
you know, all the people who were wearing the um, who were wearing the sales 2.0 jersey around 2009, 2010, and then the rug was pulled out from under them with social selling. I think that they're reconstituting themselves into the so into the sales enablement uh, camp. I don't know about you, but I see more and more about sales enablement, and I think it's a new jersey and a new look, but same old. Yeah, well, I think that's true. I mean, I think that that. You know, there's a lot of repackaging that goes on, and that's that's fine. I mean, that's normal. I mean, I think that if you look at the course of human events and, you know, philosophy and all sorts of sort of, you know, schools of thought that have, have uh, been with us, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of things that are considered insights are really a repackaging. It's like the new improved Tide, but it's still about getting your shirt clean, right? It's still about getting your shirt clean. There you go. <laughs> All right, so one topic that you've written about recently that I wanted to delve into okay. is what you consider sort of a misguided focus on finding the customer's pain points um, as opposed to what you write about others, finding where the customers want to be. Right. You know, so putting a Band-Aid on something versus helping a customer achieve something that they aspire to. So... Yeah, you sort of start the article saying hey, sales hasn't fundamentally changed because we're still sort of focused on identifying pain points. Yeah. And I think, again, I look at a couple of things. One is when I do workshops and I work with people out there doing this day to day. So it's not, you know, we're not dealing in a laboratory. And, you know, whether it's the prospecting program or whether it's, you know, stuff around the process and territory management and so on. And the question comes up, you know, when you first meet a prospect, what do you want to know? And a vast majority, they want to know the pain point. They want to know the uh, the needs, or they're trying trying to get the prospect to, and you know, I'm using air quotes to confess to having a problem so they can sell their solution. Um, but I think that even those people who have and recognize and are willing to admit to a stranger that they have pain as I mentioned in a different context a few minutes ago, to me, make up a very small part of the market. Plus, they come to the market on their own. You know, if somebody's bleeding and they're looking for a Band-Aid, they're not going to wait for the mobile pharmacy to drive by before they get one. They're going to go and get it. So if somebody gets a large order and they need to expand capacity, they're not going to wait for somebody to come to them. So the question for me has always been, how can I go beyond the obvious for two reasons? One is... I like to be alone when I'm selling, as it were, so it's not as crowded uh, as as the people who are putting up their hands and they're saying, I'm ready to buy for the right price from the right person. Um, and to me, it's more interesting, what does it take to bring those people who, who we commonly refer to in the industry as being status quo, what does it take to bring them into the market? And I think that that's a lot more challenging, and I think it's a skill that a lot of people don't have and and bring it full circle to what we talked about before i think that's where a lot of these you know social selling pundits are offering false hope to their audience and and the num and the numbers prove it i mean what was false it less hope th- in what way that if they adopt these tools or if they just add this app or if they just you know take on this different way of looking at the world through a different prism of social somehow your sales success is going to change but if you look at whether it's the CSO studies and so on, the number of people 
who've made their quota in B2B hasn't substantially improved in the last three, four years. And in fact, some of the stats... Right. And if you look at SaaS and the people who ran with the SDR concept, um, their numbers are even more horrific. I saw stats presented at a conference in April that suggested that less than 20% of those people make their targets. Now, we can make the argument that the targets are unrealistic and so on, but let's assume that they're stretch targets. More than 20% should be making them. So where is all this success from social? And I say this as someone who uses it. I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm just saying it's not the only thing in town. Well, I think there is a conundrum, though. That, and you, you point this out in one of the articles you've written recently, is that that your contention is that the sales technology, you know, we're serving this golden, what I call golden age of, of sales technologies, and we have the explosion of all these incredible tools. But you're saying your belief is they only help the A players, you know, the most successful are the only ones that are really taking full advantage of them to, to succeed. And that they really are sort of hurting the B and the C players. I think so, because I think the A players bring a whole bunch of things to it themselves. And I think they look at the tool and say, okay, how can I use this tool to help me do what I want to do? I think the B and C players are sitting there and saying, please, tool, make me successful in areas that I can't be on my own. And I don't think that that works. So I think that if they use those tools and so on, sure, they can uptick a couple of degrees, but it's not going to fundamentally change the way they sell their philosophy, their outlook. Tools are just tools. And, you know, I don't know who said it first, but we're all familiar with the saying that, you know, a fool with a tool is still a fool, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that what makes A players A players is how and what they do um, when it comes to selling, not necessarily the tools they use. Now, because they bring up shall we say, smarter philosophy to it, they probably choose their tools differently and probably apply them differently. But if you took away their tools, they would still be A players. And if you took away some of the B players' tools, you might find some of them are C players. And C players should really be seeking you know, employment in the hospitality industry. Well, so what's... <laughs> not to be too severe about it. Um, just, just being realistic. Well, yeah, maybe on balance it's true. But I've... I've worked with C players that have become great A players. Um, but not the it's not the case, right? Not the the rule, let's say, but it, it certainly does happen. So so what is the solution though for B players, C players? Because again, there's general acknowledgement that geez, the, the best path to sustainable growth is to have what I call your sales middle class improve. You know, if they can improve five, ten percent, that's better than trying to have the the upper stratum just improved five ten percent. Yeah, I, th- I think that. So, I, so I would the, I would agree with that. So, so again, what's the path to do that? So I think that there is merit to focusing on the B players. Um, the reason I talked about the C players, um, you know, so there's only so many resources and time that a manager has, right? And I think the natural tendency is to ignore the A players, and I think that that's a mistake. I think the A players are, you know, you want to make sure that they're happy and you want to make sure that you can share their best practices and so on. So I think a certain amount of your focus has to be put on the A players. I think the majority of your focus should be put on the B players because I agree, if I can constantly improve the top end and keep bringing people up you know, through that, then I'm going to have a certain number of B players who are going to graduate and become A players, and then I'm going to have the others continuously improve. Now, again, I don't want to go down the Jack Welch route as to you know, get rid of certain numbers at the bottom and so on, but 
I buy what you're saying, and I tend to agree with it. I do think, however, if somebody, after you've made a serious effort um, to help them and they continue to be C players, then I think the writing's on the wall. And I've always come from the school of hire slow, fire fast. So, yes, work with them. Give them every opportunity to succeed. But after a point, you know, if you had another asset, if the copier wasn't cutting it, you how how many times would you give it a second chance? And I know there's human beings involved here, and we're talking about the C players, but at one point they begin to be a drain on your energy, a drain on your resources, and they begin to impact the whole organization. I'm talking the whole company, not just sales. So um you know, so I'm certainly not advocating that we be nasty to human beings, but on the other hand, I've got only so much love and I'd rather show it to the A's and the B's. Okay. Well, I mean I yeah, I understand that. I, th- I think that that you so, know, one, one of the issues is is still in my mind is that I'm not sure I buy that. At least my experience looking at managers and the teams I work with that they spend so little time with the A players um, because a lot of managers are yeah necessarily self interested. So they're trying to ride the horse that brought them there. I think some are, um, and, and I would say, again, clearly that's my view. Um, what I find, though, is a lot of managers will spend a disproportionate amount of time in the C players. And I think to some degree, and this isn't, again, across the board, but in some instances, you know, a manager will have a territory that's empty. And in a panic, they'll bring somebody in, figuring we can, you know, we can help them, we can develop them, we can train them. Um, you know, you asked earlier about the path. I think having a robust uh, sales process that's being adhered to could serve as a platform not only for sales that are in progress, but also as a means, as a platform for coaching, as a platform for hiring, and so on. So you should be able to identify who is going to make it and who's not going to make it in a relatively reasonable amount of time if you have a sales process because now you can look at various stages, see where they're succeeding, where they're not succeeding, and so on. So I'm certainly not advocating that we toss C players to the wind without effort, but I also think that a lot of times managers find themselves with somebody that isn't ideal because they rushed the process because they didn't want to leave a territory empty much longer or they hire somebody because there wasn't anybody on the horizon. So now they're stuck with this diamond that needs to be, you know, a rough diamond that needs to be polished. And sometimes it's not a diamond. And instead of trying to polish it, you should deal with it for what it is. So I think part of it is, again, having that process because then everybody could follow it and sing from the same, you know, hymn book. But Mm -hmm. Again, I don't want to go down too far the path of what do we do with C players, but I do think at times I see organizations. I'm working with a company now that for the last two months, it's been clear that one of the salespeople not only wasn't cutting it, but had no intent of cutting it. You know, the the salary was just nice and, you know, and it took him a long time to make the decision, um, even though the writing was on the wall. I think their heart was in the right place. They were probably nicer human beings than I am, I guess, in that light, but it costs them a lot of time and money mm-hmm. well, and yeah. it has an impact on the other players on the sure. team. No, absolutely. Well, in that case, the person's, I mean, you're, it's a, that person's only a C player. If, <laughs> if you only have three tiers, right. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, you know, 
managers do need to spend more time coaching and leading their um, their B players because I think that's where the um, I think that's where the opportunity is. But again, often I'll ask managers how they go about their coaching and whether they have a formal coaching plan for each of their reps based on a number of factors. And a lot of times there isn't a formal one. And so, again, I think that... Well, there's, the there's some, some that's been written and written relatively recently. I forget who it was. I'd have to go back and check. But saying that sales managers should spend 30 hours a week coaching. I, I don't know. I don't know how you measure thirty hours because one of it depends on how many reps you have. So I tend to look at it more no, on but a rep you've got level. A limited amount of time. So I mean, it's still three quarters of your time, theoretically, right? But what do you get paid for otherwise? I mean, well, our job I'm not, is. I'm not disagreeing necessarily. I'm just. Yeah. But I mean, by the same token, we've seen books from people we know coming out this past year about coaching, sales management, and the absolute dearth of coaching that's taking place. That. You know, managers, frontline managers are being feeling the push pull between coaching and satisfying, you know, those senior them that that want them to be focused on metrics and the big data and so on. But those two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, you know, when I work with managers, I think part of the um so let's acknowledge that, yeah, what you said sometimes goes a little too far, but I think metrics and and measurements are important. If I'm mm-hmm. going to help you do something, then we need to understand where we are now and, and where we want to get to. So it's a lot like sport. There's nothing wrong with having some criteria and watching the game tape and measuring how fast you run from point A to point B, as long as that then is taken into a coaching program which helps develop me as a salesperson as opposed to it being something that's used punitively or you know two dimensionally uh, you know where it becomes a reason to wag your finger at me which i still see a lot of managers do not physically but you know what i mean mm-hmm. so to me shaming yeah, to me, if I'm going to coach somebody, yeah, there's some basic stats that I want to know, um, and there's some basic expectations that are that I would have of the team, but then I want to take those and use them to improve the individuals and, by extension, collectively the team. So I don't see those two as being mutually exclusive. I think, going back to your point earlier, that a lot of stuff that I'm reading with managing and coaching and so on some of it does tend to be influenced by what it is that they want to sell, right? Um, so if you're selling a coaching software, you're going to you know, espouse the virtues of doing it that way and so on. Um, <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so yeah. the, back to the original point. is So the research that so many people talk about, yeah. which most common fact we hear is that you know, coaching increases uh, productivity or sales performance by 19%. Oh, I heard the discounted version seventeen, but go ahead. <laughs> well, that's the difference from the U.S. and Canada, I think. But there you go. That's right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so, you know, did that all originate with people that are selling coaching program? The guy I heard it from was—I mean, I'm not going to name names, but yeah, <laughs> the guy I heard it from, you know, it was like, yeah, straight up, like you know, um, he did it elegantly. I'll give it to him. Um, I think, so let me ask another question along the same lines, but okay. 
So what if you woke up in the morning and it was just, you were given sort of a report that said, yeah, all this research, all these commonly accepted facts that we, or statistics that we assume are facts about Mm -hmm. sales, you know, less than 50% making quota, you know, certain close rates dropping, you know, 19% boost from sales training, you know, all these assessment tools that say that you can track, you know, increase your higher, you know, higher of A players by, you know, 100% guaranteed, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. What if that was just all proven to be, <laughs> not Russell wrong, but just not applicable? I mean, what do you do at that point? As well, a what, coach because, or because as we a start, manager? We're starting, well, we've, you said we've got this group thing going on that we start right. all repeating these same statistics to each other. And maybe if we say one thing somewhat perhaps is true, you know, let's say like the CSO insights on quota attainment, because mm-hmm. that's should be a number that people sort of, it's not being self-reported, you know, it's something that's no. being reported by, by manager level or executive level. Um, where do we start to really sort of determine what really makes a difference? So I think there are some things, I mean, again, to go old school, you know, there's, there are some things that will add to a salesperson's success, you know, um, drive and, and, and is one of them, not necessarily ambition, but just drive, um, you know, knowing what they want out of life and, and so on. There's a level of attitude that I think comes into it. That's the non-scientific part that, can those again, be taught? I think, yes, they could be. So I think they could be demonstrated and replicated. Um, I think, will they ever get the passion? That's difficult. Um, you know, I think that if you get them doing the right things and they're having success with it and so on, then at one point you hope that that passion kicks in, their fear of trying things, you know, dissipates and so on. But, you know, even now, and when I was selling for a corporation, often people ask me why I got a deal. And the only answer I had is I wanted it more than the other guy. Um, you know, so I think that you can replicate the behavior of that. So it's not, you know, um, you could show them some of the things that if you do habitually, you'll have greater success at achieving certain things. And if you achieve those things with regularity and again, along the process, that's where the process comes in. Cause I don't have to worry about teaching everything at once. I can teach it to you in stages, right? So my end goal may be to help you is, you know, get your view of attitude or get get that attitude a bit more front and center. But I can lead you to that by helping you execute the process um, that should reflect success in your company. So I think there's some things that aren't necessarily textbook taught, but you can replicate behavior. And I think to your point, you know, 30 hours of coaching, part of that needs to be showing them what behavior you want them to replicate. But there would be i think one of the one of the pluses of these technologies and social things and so on is they give people a point of reference they give people something that they can use to gauge where they are and where they want to go and so on and i think without that you know some of us would be um would be a bit more challenged than we are now yeah no i agree and i and again the whole point of this conversation is not to bash no, I'm not, I'm, sales technologies or social selling cuz they are incredibly useful tools but it's the think I'm trying to get people to think about 
the fact that my belief is that at the end of the day, while you definitely, and I write about this in my first book, you have to have a process, you have to measure, you have to understand. Yeah. But at the end, it still is going to boil down to that person talking to a person. It will. And I think, again, it's a question of what and how you want to talk to them. Um, and that's why I make great distinction. If you read my my blogs, it's maybe not as evident, but it certainly will be in the book. I definitely make a difference between a buyer and a prospect. A buyer's made a decision and they've engaged a marketplace and it's an entirely different experience that the salesperson needs to bring to conclude that transaction. Well, what's the difference in your mind between a buyer and a prospect? A buyer self-declared. They got up and they have a need. They have a, they have a pain. It's that 10 or so percent of the market that's actively out there looking because, again, even let's say it's a pain. Let's say, you know, a meteor crashed their building and they have to buy a new roof, right? But on the other hand, it could be that they just got a large contract and they realize that they need to get a new machine to fulfill the contract. So that's not a pain. It's a pain if they don't fulfill the contract, but I would say it's a growth opportunity. So to me, those people who are called buyers entered the marketplace on their own. Right. And prospects are proactively developed. Prospects yeah, are people who you had to bring into the market, entice them into the market. And I don't mean that negatively, but left on their own, they'd sit on the sideline. I have to say things that will, A, get them to engage with me. Um, and then, B, once they're engaged, I actually have to show them how I can help them achieve some of the objectives that they've set out for their business, either on a personal level or a collective level. So to me, a prospect is somebody that is not in the market, doesn't want to know the market exists. You know, um, it's the ones that I reach out to when I cold call. And that's why I get into these great debates about whether cold calling works or not. To me, it's side by side. For a buyer, I can facilitate through social media. But for somebody that isn't a buyer that would have not thought about sales training unless I would have called them up, those are prospects that I have to go and you know, bring into the marketplace, um, take them through the cycle, and so on. Well, it's interesting you bring up, <laughs> you bring this up, not to, to beat this unnecessarily, but, you know, back to this whole idea of, of statistics. So, you said the 10% or so that are self-declared. Or so. You know, there's a study that came out, uh, I don't know, 2010, 2011, I think it's from Demand Gen, that uh, could have the source wrong, but I think that's what it was. That said that their study of B2B buyers found that uh, 93% of B2B buyers said that they initiated their buying process. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, buyers, right? So, well, um, but they were using that generically. You know, they're talking to people after they had purchased, and they're saying, you know, did you initiate this process because you were contacted by a sales rep or did you start it yourself? And 93% said they started it themselves. It's interesting. I, was, uh, I saw a study that came out last year that looked at small businesses in Canada and the States. And I think they had about a sample of 1,700 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, always important to ask that question. But, um, and what they found is similar to what you're saying is that for upsells, so not initial buys, but for upsells, it was about forty-eight percent that self-initiated, as opposed to um, as opposed to being approached by the salesperson. But this is the problem with stats. Like I tried oh, to look into that's, this. <laughs> like that's, that's the point we started started getting on with this is yeah. So you know, like it Chet doesn't Holmes. really matter. I mean, yeah. to your point, it's these you know proactive sit side by side with inbound, and you're going to need both unless you've somehow 
crack the code and you've got an incredibly effective marketing machine that targets the right buyers and only delivers you prospects that are, you know, fit your buyer persona. Yeah, and you know, but stats or not, it's not scientific, but by show of hands, and I do a lot of workshops in a given year and presentations and stuff, and one of the questions I always ask is, can you make quota without A, bringing on new clients, so, you know, from your base and strictly from referrals? And a large number, I'm not going to go into the stats, but when I look up, there's more hands than not, say that they cannot make quota without approaching what I call prospects, yeah. so people who aren't coming to them. New business. Right. So, they ha- so to be successful, you have to embrace both. I don't Absolutely. Think, you know, I don't think you can say, I'm this or I'm that, and that's why I sort of laugh at you know, some of the people that we both know that talk about, well, we're just social selling and cold calling is old school. And I always I thought it odd that on a regular basis, the social guys seem to throw bombs over the wall and tell me that cold calling doesn't work. Um, and that's fine if they believe it, but it seems to me that it's working for me um, and it's working for a lot of my clients. Well, I think what we've seen is, as you know, people spend more time working with, at least I'm seeing, with suppose the thought leaders in social selling, social media, and so on, is that, yeah, we're seeing a convergence, I think, where there's an acceptance of the idea that the social is an incredibly important tool to help you prepare to have conversations with the people you want to do business with. Right. I agree. I mean, again, um, long before social was social, I'm sure you were on LinkedIn because it was a great place to glean insights into different people, especially if you can follow them into the groups and things like that. Um, I think what, you know, I I used the phrase earlier, you know, I I think the challenge or the problem is, is that, you know, I see my role and, and by extension, the profession, you, me, and so forth and so on, is to truly help the person that we're working with. Um, as opposed to be sort of you know doctrine driven, and I get I get sort of nervous when other people like me, whatever you want to call us, sales consultants, trainers, whatever, all of a sudden get real religious and say you know it's social uberalis. You know at that point, you know well, I get well, sort of nervous. Or anything uberalis. Yeah. I, I get sort of nervous. I prefer somebody who can say, you know, this is why I have the mosaic that I have. And here's how it can change if things change. Yeah, well, that's sort of the path I was heading down from the beginning is, yeah, I, yeah. I'm very skeptical of the doctrinaire. And, you know, I think that that all this supposed research or supposed conclusions driven, drive from much of this research it's not. So, it's not valid. I mean, it's not. And so, what we need to be looking at is, as you sort of talked about, is we're going to take a mix of activities and a mix of approaches to succeed to an optimum level, and we need to determine what that mix is. And then, you know, I think it's interesting. I don't know if you saw the stats that came out from the CEB um, earlier this year. I think around the time that uh, the conference, their conference, took place in Vegas, but. Uh, myself and a number of others were in D.C. in the summer where we got to look at some of these. But they show how most of the complexity that's gone into sales has been as a result of technology and apps just being thrown at the salespeople. And most of the complexity in the quote-unquote complex sale really is internal complexity as opposed to external complexity. 
And while there's more and more tools being thrown at salespeople ostensibly to make them more effective or efficient, um, that effect efficiency is going down. And they CEB shows how that's actually um, impacting negatively um, returns and results. I did a post on that in October um, using their stats and so on. Um, showing that there's actually a decline in financial results or at least quota delivery by salespeople based on the fact that I think they're overburdened by technology. So a little bit of a good thing, you know, the old saying, too much of a good thing is not a good thing, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think the right technology for the right reason based on how it helps you and helps your customers a lot better than the latest technology that nicely plugs into whatever platform I've gone with, and most people seem to go with one. Yeah, no, I, I that's a, yeah, I've, I'd seen that stats, and I think that that uh, yeah, there's a lot of validity in that. We sort of touched on that earlier in terms of what the, yeah. the impact of all this investment and in technologies are. I guess, sir, where it, you know where I lean these days, and what push people to sort of think about is is you know what if all this technology went away would you still yeah. be able to sell i would and i don't say that no but i'm saying that you know, in, a, in a hypothetical sense for the larger audience and i think that's where they need to think about in terms of their own personal development and the skills and the habits and the behaviors they need to develop which is you know it's still that person to person right if you can master that then you know the technical part can help you in many ways, but it's also not going to hold you back. But I think there is a broader thing, and maybe that'll be our third discussion, but I'm willing to open it, that there is a lot of talk about whether that leads to that person-to-person -person thing. So I do empathize with salespeople. The one thing I do get, and, and I understand why they feel cold calling is frustrating, it's a lot harder to get people on the phone these days, right? So while I buy into what you're saying, and I tell the people I work with the same thing at the end of the day it's going to come down to two people doing something it's it's harder to find the dance partner than it used to be oh, sure and so I understand that frustration so people are now desperately looking for ways and then you get the snake oil salesman who see an audience and they give them what they want at least on the surface level um, so, you know, you got this challenge around getting in touch. Well, you're doing the wrong thing. You really ought to be using this thing to slice their tweets this way or the other way, or you ought to be using this thing. So that's why the false hope comes up that I don't think that if any single tool or means is going to help you overcome some of the other trends mm -hmm. in society vis-a-vis -vis communication and so forth and so on. Um, and I think... In fact, the question you ask it sort of keeps coming back that I think maybe that's how salespeople should learn to sell first is without technology. And once they've demonstrated their ability that they can actually sell without technology, then you introduce technology that makes them more effective and efficient. But right now, I think the formula is backwards. Here's all these tools. You figure out how to use them and, by the way, make quota at the same time. That's a great, so way, to, a great, uh, a great way to finish up. Yeah. So... Uh, now we're in the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions to ask all my guests. You've answered the first set of standard questions I have. So now you as a repeat visitor, you get new new standard questions. Oh, so I don't I don't even get to find out if I'm consistent. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, and chances for that are probably pretty slim. So um, 
So here's here's the first one. Just some rapid fire questions. You can give me one word answers or elaborate if you wish. So the first one is: Is it easier to teach in your mind? Is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell, or teach a salesperson how to sell a technical product? Um, the latter. Uh, I'd rather take a salesperson and teach him a technical product than the other way. Why? Because I think technology is. As you said earlier, it's a people's game, right? So I would argue that I could sell almost anything because I could learn the product because to me, it's understanding what the customer wants to do with it and how my product can help them do that. So if they lack the understanding of what their customer is trying to do and how they can help them, you know, technologists get too enamored by the technology. I'd rather have somebody that's enamored by helping somebody knowing that Everybody benefits in a number of ways as a result, and they're also much more willing to learn than the technology that's going to help them do that. So I, I'd rather have a salesperson. I've written several things about this, that especially for small businesses, they make the biggest mistake of hiring, quote unquote, the product guy, and they might as well just buy the coffin at the same time. Um, <laughs> okay, such a delicate way of putting that. All right, so the next Sorry. one is... <laughs> What's one non-business, non-sales, non-marketing book you'd recommend every salesperson read? Like, you know, is there one literary work you would recommend? That- Shibumi. Shibumi. Ah, uh, Trevanian. I forget his first name, but he's the guy that wrote The Iger Sanction. Oh, right, right, right. And a couple of others. Yeah. But yeah, Shibumi. Interesting. I th- I'm sure I've read that. What's, which one is that about? That's where the guy is a former spy and Asian trained and he can kill you with a piece of paper. And, you know, it just, it really shows sort of what you can, what you can actually do if you set out to do it. And it's got a whole bunch of drama and romance and all that stuff that okay. makes it really good in scenery. But I think that if you look at that and say, hey, you know, not every... I don't have to be like that other sales guy, you know. I don't have mm-hmm. to be either either Herb Tarlick or, you know, <laughs> I don't know what the other extreme would be. But I got heard hadn't heard that name from WKRP in Cincinnati for a long time. Yeah, come on. All right. Um, next question: If you could change one thing about your business self, what would it be? I get rid of the name of my company. I hate the word solutions. And at the time, it was a really good idea, but it was a short-lived idea. Um, much like Sales 2.0. So I would get rid of the name Solutions out of the company name um, because I think Solutions is a hollow word. It's up to you. A few dollars with a lawyer. I'm sure you can take care of that. So the last (laughs) one. Yep. Do you have a favorite quotation or words of wisdom that you live by? Words of wisdom. Or a quotation. Yeah, I don't know if it'll mean anything to anybody, but, you know, um, it's the old line from a song that I like, you know, I may make you feel, but I can't make you think. Now, nah, which song? Thick as a brick. Thick as a brick. <laughs> I love we it. Ta- we talked about that last time. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's a good one. Yeah. So, uh, great. Well, Tibor, thanks for joining me. And... Oh. Uh, tell folks how they can find out more about you well they can find me at sellbetter.ca although based on a discussion i've had with a web guy today soon to be tiborshanto.com but for the moment sell sellbetter.ca oh actually i own that domain which one tiborshanto.com i don't think so maybe <laughs> spelled differently but 
<laughs> one of the first things I took care of. I'm sure you did. Uh, and the other way is by email tibor.shanto at salbetter.ca. And if you're old school like me, just pick up the phone and dial plus one. 416-822-7781. Love it. Love it. Okay, yeah. Tibor, thank you for taking the time, especially out of your evening like this, to t- speak with me. And uh, friends, thank you for joining us. And remember, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And an easy way to do that, join my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Tibor Shanto, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. And if you enjoy this podcast, Accelerate, and the value we're delivering, then please take a quick minute right now to leave your feedback about this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It would be very much appreciated. So thanks again for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.